Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with yet another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. Today, I'm privileged to have Andrew Cousins, who is from Terra Flora Organics. Now, Andrew spent two decades in software engineering and eventually arrived at the conclusion that his talents would be better spent working with nature in the physical real world than furthering development of the digital one, which has been demonstrated to disconnect individuals from nature in spite of never being more connected. There's never been a greater need for people to produce sustainable solutions to managing our footprint on this planet and the need to relocalize food production that has le- that reached a climax. Welcome to the podcast. Michael, thank you so much for having me. Really excited to be here and it's a real privilege to get to uh, speak with you about, um, you know, what's uh, a really a popular topic right now. It's uh, gone beyond romance and uh, there's a lot. Pardon me, there's a lot of interest in um, achieving some of what I mentioned in my uh, little bio there. Yeah, absolutely. So how did you get into organic farming? I mean, you're coming from software engineering. What was the, the kind of transition? Yeah, I've had in, um, inflammatory bowel disease my whole life. Started, um, had a really bad, it's strange, really bad staph infection when I was a little kid. I had went in for surgery and I came out of the hospital. I was breaking out in boils. Oh gosh. Um, like biblical level Job yeah. kind of boils that went on for two, three years. And then I developed the inflammatory bowel disease. You know, I was going to the bathroom 12 to 15 times a day. It didn't matter where I was. I, I had to be near a bathroom. So I had anxiety all the time. It, yeah. It, you know, really just not, no one knew anything. No doctor could help. I tried all kinds of medications, like you name it. I tried it. And yeah. eventually um, it, it came down to glyphosate roundup. Really? Yeah. I uh, went on my honeymoon to Europe and I had, I thought it was gluten like everybody else. Right. Yeah. I was gluten intolerant and, and by cutting out the, the, the wheat, it really did improve. And yeah, so that, you know, I went to Europe and my wife was really jet lagged and we were in Paris and I'm thinking, I don't care if I have diarrhea for the next week, I'm eating pastries. And, uh, I didn't get sick. And not only did I not get sick, I felt great. And this, this went on in Italy and in Greece. And uh, when I got back home, I thought I was cured. I started eating those foods again and immediately got sick. So I started digging and Roundup is banned in those countries. And so did a little bit more digging and and found out that Western Canada, where I live, is actually ground zero for the most Roundup use of oh, all wow. foods examined that uh, Health Canada, Health Canada, I think in 2015 or so, did a, they sampled all foods imported into Canada and all foods grown. And that's where they found West foods grown in Western Canada had the most Roundup of any thing imported from anywhere around the world. So no wonder I was sick. And as I removed those foods, um, I, I was like, well, the Fraser Valley where, where I live, where is a very, uh, a lot of food is produced here. Yeah. Um, they all use Roundup. Like there's not a lot of organic farming going on. So I recognized that if I wanted to take, um, care of myself, I needed to grow my own food. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So and, and, and the thing is like the government really doesn't do anything about the glyphosate. They just kind of let it happen still. I mean, like Michael, it's worse than that. Just before, uh, Justin Trudeau, who's our, our prime minister, just before he got elected, uh, he, he called an election suddenly, uh, they, the government was trying to increase the amount of glyphosate allowed to be used. And they tabled it because all of a sudden there was this election called, so that's what's on their mind. They're actively trying to use more of it. And that's, that's very scary um, because, you know, we, we know that we actually need to go in a completely different direction. But that's, you know, that's, um, you know, not, not going to uh, put any, 
you know, hate on anybody. It's just, this is the reality yeah. of the conventional agricultural system and where it's at, you know, they, they, mm -hmm. the, the earth is fighting back. The, the biology is becoming resistant as it does. So, yeah, you know, using more, uh, that's, that's, we all know that that doesn't work. It's just, just going to exacerbate the problem. Mm -hmm. All right. So that was the, the background. And then you started, did you start, you said start growing your own food? Yeah. And, you know, so that was kind of interesting. I, I was already a gardener, you know, I grew tomatoes and cucumber, uh -huh. your, your summer stuff. Right. But I was yeah. a, I was a miracle grow gardener and I, uh, it's, I had a, a little rental place uh, before I met my wife and I had this really sweet uh, Asian landlord and she would do really strange things like burying white stuff, uh, uh -huh. which I, I can only guess was like yogurt or some kind of labs, uh, lactic acid, bacteria, serum, or, or, you know, the curds from that process. And I noted that although my garden, you know, took off and was, was huge and it was like roaring, uh, it eventually became overcome with pests and her plot, which is just, you know, 10, 15 feet away. Uh, it not only did not get blight, like all of my squash did, uh, it thrived and it went on uh, over a month and a half longer into the, the shoulder season, you know, into September, October. Yeah. Um, it just, it just blew me away. So that was my kind of first experience with, you know, what is beyond organic or regenerative uh, agricultural practices, right. That kind of farming. And so when I started, uh, you know, t trying to actually grow fruit, I started a market garden in, in 2019. I knew that's where I wanted to go. And I, I took a course by a guy, Dan Ostenbrink as a, um, he runs a 26 acre market garden here in Chilliwack, BC. And he, he put on a course that, uh, he called a no-till gardening course. And he, he just blew my mind uh, with the, the knowledge of how, you know, a plant uh, will trade its uh, exudates, its energy that it creates from photosynthesis with the soil food web below. And if you give it miracle Grow, it's not going to do that. Yeah. It's only, it's, you know, I'm sure everyone listening is, is familiar with that concept. And so if you, if you kill the biology by starving it, of course, you get unhealthy plants, you get imbalance, you get disease, you get uh, pest pressure, all these things uh, happen. So um, that's, that's where um, I'm at now is, is trying to drive this um, knowledge forward by teaching it to people. And that's why I started TerraFlora was both to provide inputs, right? For, uh -huh. uh, I think supplements for plants. I, I often think of our, our soil amendments as, as probiotics. And so that's where that word comes from. But yeah, that's the goal is to um, provide them for people because I know that there's others in the same position as me. And, and also, you know, someone's got to help these conventional farmers switch. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. There needs to be a big change in our food system. And, and a lot of people like to say there's lots of information out there, but I think one of the things too, is that everyone receives information a little bit differently. And so we need to have a variety of teaching styles and a lot of different people teaching it, and that will help it, you know, grow more. I couldn't agree more. Um, there should be a teacher in every town. You mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, you started growing, what kind of things does your, is your farm now kind of, uh, what kind of, what things do you grow and then what kind of things do you sell and how do you do that? So we have a half acre uh, market garden um, lab is what it actually is because uh, I, I use the traditional market garden style, 30 inch beds, they're hundred mm -hmm. foot long. And we primarily grow uh, alliums like garlic and leeks. And okay. that's just because, you know, while I was working full-time and starting the garden, it just made sense to grow things that didn't require a lot of um, effort, right? You Yep intensive for a few days while you get it prepped. And then, you know, you come back six, eight months later. Um, and then my wife, who's a florist, uh, you know, the more I began to learn about the floral industry uh, and, you know, the, as the, as it's connected to pesticide use and, and waste, plastic shipping, diesel, like all this stuff. Right. Um, and being frustrated as logistical problems started to mount, we decided to also grow flowers. So, uh, we, on the one, on the one side, we grow the alliums and on the other side, uh, about half of it, we grow, um, dahlias again, a, a low, you know, 
low maintenance kind of plant um, and some peonies, some ranunculus and anemones. And that was to enable her to have her own supply of really mm -hmm. uh, quality blooms that were pesticide free um, to work with and uh, trying to sort of push that movement of getting brides to choose local blooms. And that's an amazing thing that's been happening with, you know, we think of a, at least as far as Hollywood's concerned, bridezilla, you know, these are difficult yeah. women, it's their special day. But what we found is this, this new generation of, of beautiful women that are coming along are saying, no, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to choose what's local. I'm going to use what uh, is sustainably grown. And so that's, that's our sort of, um, um, that's where we learn the lab, right? We experiment and, and play around. And then I have uh, my worm farm, which is at another location. And that is a, it's about a, uh, 2,500 square foot production facility, and then about five acres of uh, composting. And we we produce all kinds of compost and inputs. We do some natural farming inputs like fish amino acid and uh, bokashi uh, inoculant, um, and uh, you know premium biodynamic compost with a focus on being fungally balanced and even fungally dominant, which is is key because getting the getting the fungi back in the soil, you know, when you think about soil disturbance, um, it's the fungi get hurt the most. It's bacteria do too, because they, they use those fungal strands to uh, mobilize themselves throughout the uh -huh. field. Uh -huh. But certainly um, fungi seem to have been hit the worst. So there's a, there's a lot of effort and focus on, on getting um, very, very diverse fungal uh, biology into our, our various products. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right. So a lot of what you're doing then is you're selling things that normal farms don't sell. I mean, there's, I don't think there's a lot of farms selling your types of products. No, there's, there's one or two that we're selling what people call worm castings, which um, I prefer the term vermicompost or vermicast mm -hmm. because truthfully, you know, you can't collect the, everything that comes out of the butt of a worm. You're, you're getting other Mm -hmm. other stuff. And, um, you know, we're, we're tailoring that recipe with, um, you know, growth hormones and, uh, enzymes, growth enzymes and things that have been demonstrated to really, uh, just improve the health and vitality of the plants to get in touch with. So, although it's, you know, we call it worm castings, but truthfully it's, it's a carefully engineered, um, probiotic. And yeah. the goal is to, um, just, a a brief aside for those who, who um, are sort of new to uh, organic farming, you know, when you, when you think about a, a baby, it's born, um, you know, the, the very best case for a, a, a baby is to have a vaginal birth and there it gets inoculated mm -hmm. with, mm -hmm. a, with its immune system and then to be breastfed. And so in the context of a seed, the very best thing for that seed is to be germinated not into sterile soil, which is what all potting mixes are. And you even read most seed packages. It says sterile. Yeah. And that's just, there could be nothing farther from the truth for the beyond organic grower. So by putting um, that, that uh, tap root, that little root that comes out right into touch with the most diverse set of microorganisms possible, it can then select who it wants to work with. And then when you take that transplant out into the field, it's set. If, yeah. As long as you've got the minerality and you've got your water dialed in and you've got good sun exposure and wind protection, you know, the other needs for that plant, it will do very, very well. And so it's a very cost effective way to apply compost. I mean, compost is very expensive to apply, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and I know a lot of market gardeners really struggle with trying to produce enough. And that's where vermicompost just sings. You know, if, if, as long as you've got um, your mulching layer that you can produce uh, to protect that, that soil food web biology, getting some vermicompost in touch with the roots of a plant, you know, right as it germinates would be the very best. And then if not, at least when you transplant. So in the case of like our garlic, um, we put about a tablespoon of worm castings in the hole that with each clove and that's it. And mm. we have seen phenomenal storage life and growth and resilience to to common pest issues and we also don't rotate our beds yeah um, we do rotate in the sense that what there's a there's a crop or two that will follow the garlic but then yeah. we throw garlic right back in there and we attribute that to 
just the diversity of biology that's in the soil. Well, I mean, let's break this down a little bit. I mean, in nature, garlic would typically follow garlic. Yeah, it would sit there and it would be dormant. Yep. And then, I mean, we've seen it. The volunteers come up. If you, uh, you know, you chop your bulbils and leave them in there or you just, you know, you just left it to go on its own. It would, yeah. it would just it would just do its own thing. And in the meantime, what would happen is weeds would grow or something else would, would naturally grow in nature. I mean, we don't, we don't see these issues in nature. It's only when we monocrop that we see, um, you know, issues with farming. So uh, by, you can, you can remediate that by following it with, like I like to follow it with hackerai, uh, like a Tokyo turnip or yep. a very uh -huh. fast growing, fast maturing um, vegetable. And then uh, failing that, some type of easy, easy to terminate cover crop. Um, the holy grail here is always, always, always living root. If, if you can, a living root, it's worth the effort. If you're listening to this and you're thinking, it's just so much easier for me to cover my bed in a tarp, uh, you're much better off not doing that. You're much better off putting something in there and then um, maybe terminating that with a tarp. But, but tarping a bed for the, for the end of the season, um, it's just, it's just um, inferior to what you can do when, when you've got a, a living, a living root in there. Okay. Gotcha. All right. So let's talk about someone who may not want to put like um, vermicompost in every single bulb hole for, let's say their garlic. Can they spread it on top of the bed? Can they use the vermicompost to make a, a compost tea? How does that work? Well, because we've got so much of it, we, mm -hmm. we are happy to apply it, um, you know, topically. And that's a very wasteful way to apply vermicompost because it's, it's benefit yeah. is in most of its benefit is in getting it in touch with the root. The secondary benefit is actually applying it uh, in, in the late season and where the degraders will go to work. So that's kind of cool. And I would, I would say my, you know, my, my go-to method would be a vermicompost extract. And then okay. I would apply it as a liquid. And um, if, in the case of growing plants, I would use a, a liquid you're going to get much more bang for your buck, get it on, um, you know, in and around the root. You can also, uh, we love a product called C90 and we use it in everything yep. that we do for trace elements and minerals. And, you know, we get the underside of those leaves and we really just um, take advantage of the ease of watering and, and even, you know, um, plumbing it into your overhead watering. So you could do applications like that. Definitely, you know, water, water, solubil uh, water solubility, like um, you know, you've got, when you use a product like C90, you know, rock yeah. dusts are great. Um, but getting them, getting them to traverse down into the soil, that's, you know, obviously very challenging. You've got to get the higher members of the soil food web, like the worms and the other and beetles and things to, to move it around. Whereas if you use a liquid application and all your, your, uh, nutrients in there and water soluble, boom, right. Right. goes right where it needs to go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now let's talk a little bit about the worm, because I know there's a lot of people that would like to add worms to their farm, including myself, but we feel overwhelmed by the concept and we're like, okay, right, what's the easiest way if we just want to get more worms on our farm and actually, you know, create a system? Because one of the things we've got is we produce um, 20 to 40 trays of microgreens every single week. And, you know, that's incredible soil, but there's all those root pieces and, and pieces of microgreen. I'd love to kind of run that through a worm operation before that goes back into our farm. Yeah, unquestionably. That's everybody should have a worm bin. A worm, um, it, it doesn't matter how big or small, um, you should have one. There's just, it makes sense to be able to, to capture that activity. Uh -huh. and, and, you know, and if you can't do that, you can still, you know, when you think about compost, a properly made compost is at least 12 months old. You know, if it's uh -huh. anything less than that, then you're, you're, you're just lacking the microbial diversity that takes place. You know, when, when you just let things age that long, um, there's, there's a, a fellow uh, doctor, David Johnson out of New Mexico. Uh, he actually, uh, I think he's with the university of New Mexico. I uh, had access to equipment to examine the biology to actually the genetic makeup and, and identify, you know, the diversity of, of uh, microbes. And there's a fourfold increase mm -hmm. four times when you hit that 12 month range. So, uh, and what all, what is also happening at that time is the worms will have been through. So allowing a, a pile enough time 
for the compost worms to naturally move in from your environment and to go through your pile, that's key. I mean, that's technically a vermicompost now, isn't it? Right. The worms yeah. have been through it. It's just not as concentrated, but as you're applying it uh, in a, in a, in a blanket kind of way, right. Throwing down two inches on your beds or whatever. Um, it, it's very effective. So, um, you know, and, and it, there it's contextual, right. Everybody has to, to take a look at, you know, how much space they have, how much time they have, um, what's their weather like, um, that will dictate how you would vermicompost, but it's something that can be done indoors. Uh, there's a really great system called the hungry bin. It's like 120 liter capacity the same form factor as most recycling bins on wheels. Uh -huh. And it produces a phenomenal vermicompost because it takes about a year from the time you put something in the top to the time it comes out the bottom. And it uh -huh. takes um, this style of system, which is known as a flow through bin. It really takes the, um, the complexity out of, out of worm farming for beginners, you know, because it mimics like uh, nature. It takes a chunk of the earth and it uses gravity to ensure that it's always moisturized, always hydrated to the perfect natural amount. So it doesn't go anaerobic and it just produces the most beautiful um, worm casting. And even if you don't know what you're doing, you're going to get a, a quality casting out of that. And of course, it's not hard to scale that thing up. If you're, you're handy with a welder or you know somebody that is, you can you can create your own flow through a bin. And I would recommend that you, your listeners, um, get a book by Rhonda Sherman, The Worm Farmer's Handbook. She's visited all these amazing worm farms and commercial, uh, many different sizes, right? Small to the very, very big and shows so much information that anyone who's, um, you know, farmers are smart people. They're, they're actually engineers for the most part. So uh, I'm confident that kind of information, you can, you can find a system that works for you and you mm -hmm. just have, you just have to try, you know, you, 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 you might not, you know, I've been through three or four different iterations of a worm bin before I found out like what was going to work for me in my context, which is mm -hmm. we get, we're in a rainforest, we get exceptional amounts of rain. Uh, so, it, it, uh, and if you want to do something outdoors, you know, that presents uh, a lot of challenges. So um, definitely not, not being afraid to, to just try it. And, um, you know, over a, even a couple of years until you find what's working for you, but make the effort as a farmer. I know it's easier. You could produce more if you just didn't have to worry about it. But when you think about relocalizing food supply, um, you certainly need some expert in your local town at the very least, you know? Um, and if that expert doesn't exist, well, maybe it's you, maybe it could yeah. be you. So, all right. So, so worms, what do they need to survive? They want moisture, ideally 60, 60% or more. Okay. Uh, obviously they don't want to drown. Um, and I, if you, if you take a, uh, you know, a bucket of, of soil and you filled it with water and the bottom was perforated, you would eventually find it would probably sit around 75, 80% moisture. Um, and, and that's worms really enjoy that. And they also, now it depends on where you live, but worm compost worms, the, the one that's most known is the red wiggler, uh, Isenia fetida, Isenia fetida. Uh, that, that's a, a manure worm and it, it likes to operate between um, 15 and 25 degrees Celsius. So, uh, 15, what is that? That's 60 degrees. That's like 60 yep. to maybe 80, yep. um, Fahrenheit. And if you keep them in that range, they, that's when they're most prolific. But what we have found is that they, they are happy to, uh, to work even at lower temperatures. They, they certainly don't like much hotter. That's for sure. At that point, yeah. you know, you're going to want to switch to something like an African night crawler or, something like yeah. that. What I would really like to, to um, encourage is to select your, your worms locally because they've been regionally adapted by the, the, um, the weather in your area. So uh -huh, for example, uh -huh. you know, outdoors, you want a worm that knows how to deal with minus 20, minus 30 or, or, or whatever it is in your area. And conversely, you know, the other end, I mean, we, BC got, just absolutely murdered this year with fires and and then we got floods we had a we had a heat dome uh and then we just had an epic freeze i mean just just brutal temperatures and we personally lost quite a few worms in the heat dome and yeah. um you know because our our uh we have a uh, like a 40 foot high cube lab shipping container and it just 
didn't have AC. We were putting <laughs> putting frozen water bottles on the top of these bins to try and help them out. Yeah. But when it hit 46 degrees, um, sorry, 42 degrees Celsius. Uh, what is that? Uh, hundred seven. Hundred seven wow. Fahrenheit, and of course, so we we lost a, a whole bu- um, whole bunch of worms. But on the whole, uh, you know, we didn't lose everything in there, and because they were, um, you know, they're local, they 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 were able to deal with it. And conversely, on the other side, when we we got the very very cold temperatures here, we just broke records with with freezing yeah temperatures. You know, minus twenty two with wind chill for I think a week here, and that's highly unusual for where we are. And so that's yeah. where the, the indigenous microorganisms, you know, all the, those indigenous soul food web members are key. So if, if um, you source them from your environment, that's best. I originally had worms. I think they're from Alabama. Someone was raising them somewhere down in, in the South, in the States. And, um, you know, early on, I, I had a hard time. I was killing them a lot. Yeah. And so, yeah, I actually switched to starting all over and I, I sourced my worms locally. Um, you know, just, you know, it starts by just, turn over a cow patty you know you want, yeah you want to know yeah. who's who's eating turn over a cow patty and uh or maybe a hundred or a thousand or whatever you got to do and uh get 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 yourself some worms and um you know put put them in your your compost pile and start from there yeah absolutely um i know one of the things we've got the greenhouse and so i'd love to build some worm bins in the greenhouse and we do heat that so the minimum temp it gets in there is like 34 degrees the maximum though, obviously, you know, we're in Ohio, so we're in the nineties. Um, and then inside the greenhouse, obviously it could get hot, hotter. So, you know, maybe that's not the best place to build, put those, or maybe that's, they should only be in there seasonally. Um, it's okay. As long as you irrigate them. So we use, okay. um, we use, a, oh, we do actually store some in a greenhouse as well, but primarily yep. when we, we like outdoor is just, you know, logistically yeah. speaking, when you're producing tons of this stuff, oh, you, yeah. you, need, you need to go outdoors. Um, or, or you bet there are many benefits to doing so. Uh, overhead, um, I don't know what this type of irrigation is, or I'm not an irrigation guy, but there's these there are these tiny little sprinklers that they they sit on these sticks and they have like a really really small feeder line. Yeah. And uh, I don't know what the gallons per minute is or whatever, but it's very very light. And I just put them on a timer, and you know keeping them hydrated means they're going to be active. You know you obviously don't want to overhydrate them because then you're you're now getting leachate. Mm-hmm. And leachate is an indication that your, your bin is overhydrated. Um, okay. So, what, um, and that's not always a necessarily a bad thing. If you wanted, um, for example, my, my customer, we, we sell hungry bins, um, full disclosure there. That's, that's something that we do. Um, or any, any type of flow through bin, you, you can produce a, a liquid fertilizer I think of it almost like an extract by just pouring dechlorinated water, ideally rainwater uh, over uh-huh. the top of your worm bin. And then whatever comes out the bottom, you're going to get soil food web members. You're going to get, um, in, in the case of a very mature bin, you're going to get lots of humates, you know, your humic and fulvic acid, which are key. Yeah. You know, yeah, how yeah, plants yeah. eat. So that's, um, that's something not to be overlooked. So in, in the context of a, a commercial farmer who wants to produce worm castings, you don't want that leachate happening, right? That's your precious value leaving your bins. So um, think about that when you're, you're composting as well, right? Every time that pile gets overhydrated, you're, you're losing fertility. Yes. So, you know, maybe it's, you got to put a lot of thought into where you put those, those compost piles, ideally in a back corner somewhere near trees, near a forest, undercover. Um, otherwise, if you couldn't do that, you, know, you want to cover them. And this applies to worm bins. You want to cover them and make sure that they, they stay at that optimal hydration until you're ready for harvest. Mm-hmm. All right. So what do worms now want to eat? So they love, well, they're compost worms. They love poo. That's, yeah. that's, that's their the jam. Manure worms. Yeah. They love cow patty. Like cow poop is their absolute favorite, but they will eat um, anything that's decaying. And, and here's something kind of interesting that, you know, when I learned, I was like, oh, that's, I thought they, I thought they ate food, but they don't, they actually eat soil food web uh, members. So, you know, nematodes, protozoa, amoeba, bacteria, fungi, uh, they eat all these things. And so what's really happening is when you put like, people will say, don't feed onions to your worms. Well, don't feed raw onions, you know, yeah. a, a rotted onion that's been rotted by the, the, the right kind of microorganisms is very palatable to, 
a compost worm. Same with any kind of food. So you're really looking for um, bacteria and, and fungi and things to break these 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 foods down. Um, and the, the the exception is they don't they don't really like fats. They don't like high protein. Um, not not it not raw. You know, like they'll they'll take it later. You know, in, in the, you think of a thermophilic compost pile, you've, yeah. you've turned it and, and the bones and the meat and the, and the fats and then, you know, your, your vinegars and all this kind of stuff that might be in there, it, it gets normalized. And then the compost worms will get in there and they'll do their thing. But it, in a concentrated setting, like a worm bin, there's some pretty standard no-nos, like, you know, people avoid citrus and onions and, and 100% they avoid your meat and your dairy and your fats. And that's because they're, they're going to attract black flies, um, mm -hmm. which is, you know, really not a bad thing because those guys get in, they do it, anything that's in your compost pile is a good thing. They're in there eating yeah. and pooping and that's what you want. But if you have a worm bin and you have it in your home, or maybe you're in a, um, like I live in a strata, I live in a, a condominium, you know, my, my farm is, is uh, a few kilometers away. So I have, a balcony and I've got my worm bin out there and I've got another one inside. We don't want to attract those, those undesirables. So yeah, you want to avoid those foods. And like I said, the worms just, they, they don't have teeth. They don't have the means to, to take a steak and take it apart. Right. They need someone to get in there first. And the, the result is if anyone's found anything in their refrigerator that they forgot about, you know what that smells like. Yes. Yes. Okay. So then let's go back to this microgreen tray system that I'm looking at. It'd be more helpful if I could break all that up before the worms got a hold of it. Yes. We use a, uh, a compost shredder. Mm -hmm. um, it's a really neat device made by uh, a company called Filamaker, F-I-L-A-M-A-K-E-R uh, -E uh, out of Germany. It's, it's pretty expensive to import, but you know, they, they made a, um, they make custom, Think of yeah. the, think of a paper shredder. It's a much larger version of that. Um, uh -huh, another, uh -huh. another really popular way of mechanically uh, stressing food and breaking it down is um, like a, think of like a flail mower. Most people are familiar yep. with that. Yep. You can buy a, a, a commercial product that will effectively, you know, slam the food with chain, a rotating chains as you run the food through to pulverize it. Uh huh. Uh huh. And another, you know, another low tech way is to just freeze it. And so, ah, yes, if, yes. you know, that effect of the freeze thaw will, will cause and, and break a lot of the bonds. And so that's, that's something that, um, we love to, to give yeah. to people to try, uh, put your food in the freezer. And then when, you know, maybe, maybe your, your worm bin can't handle your volume, well, freeze it. And then when you, you can piece feed it as you go. And another way is, uh, through fermentation. So Bokashi uh, yep, yep. is an excellent way. And it's a little bit more. I'd say that's more in the advanced technique realm because uh, it's very acidic. So you, you want to make sure that your bokashi is, is fermented properly. You're not putting rotten food in there. You know, you're working with fresh ingredients, ideally. And then you're making sure that your, your system is draining out those, those acids and that you're, you're taking that sort of bokashi leachate and you're using that as a, as a, a liquid feed, heavily diluted, but getting it, getting it out of that food waste so that when you feed that, um, that fermented food to your worms, um, they can go to work on it without, uh, you know, I, I, I've killed worms like, oh man, when I first tried feeding Pikachu, you know, I, I murdered a, about 12 pounds in a bin and they, uh, I just dumped it in. Right. Didn't really think about it too much. And, yeah. uh, they weren't too happy about that. So definitely uh, a little bit more of an advanced technique, but it works wonders and you know for anyone um there is no one type of composting that's the holy grail they all have a, a context and a worm bin because of, of its advantages is, is a must-have i think everyone should have it but it also has disadvantages you know you can't from a home like from a, a, a waste management perspective of trying to help homeowners out you know meat and dairy and and that kind of thing that's, that could, that could be 20, 30% of someone's food waste. So Bokashi yeah. really answers that system. And I like to encourage um, our, our customers to use both. And that's something that um, we, we produce a gardening course, uh, an online gardening course. And that's what we, we recommend to people.
Gotcha. Um, so let's, okay, so we've got about feeding it. Now let's talk about taking off the worm castings. I know that's something that some people struggle with is, you know, obviously there's worms in the worm castings. How do you make sure that you separate them? What ways have you found that work for smaller uh, systems? Um, that's why we like the hungry bin or, or a continuous okay. flow or a flow through yep. bin, because what happens is the worms, compost worms only like to live in the top 12, maybe 18 inches. They really, they're top dwellers. So in a, in a system like the hungry bin, they will stay on the top. And when you pull the harvest tray off the bottom or in, in a larger flow through bin, you know, when you, when you pull your, your, um, there's like a knife. Yep. A uh, plate that that's dragged through the bottom and it scrapes off an inch layer or two inch layer. That way you're just getting pure castings. And there might be one or two worms down there that, that found their way down there. But the bulk of your like 99.999% of your worms are upstairs. And that's what you want. And that's, that's why it's such a great, the, the flow through bin is such a great style. And, and a worm tower, like the worm factory 360, and there's, there's others, um, they would, they would, they would qualify as that type of a bin, you know? So you, it, they're a little bit um, more challenging with the, with the worm towers because, you know, you're basically, you have to be patient um, while you put your new food in your top tray. And then you're, you're really waiting for those worms to leave the bottom tray and get hungry and move their way up. So that type of a system, you have to be paying attention to yeah. um, what you're feeding your worms and how well they're processing that food. Um, and then the other it really is the best way, right? Cause you're not, you're not getting dirty. You're not sifting. Um, but for the really basic person, what, one of the things we teach in the garden course is just a five gallon pail or, a, or a Rubbermaid bin. Uh -huh. And we like those, um, gold classifier. Um, you think of gold, you know, those gold classifying trays. Okay. You can, you can get them and they fit perfectly over a five gallon pail and the trays actually fit inside of each other. So you, you can start with a quarter inch and then you can have an eighth inch underneath. And then you just put your, your uh, worms and your cocoons and your, you know, whatever it could be, there could still be undigested food. And you just, you give it a good sift, right? And if it's, yeah. if it's um, if the moisture has been reduced at 80%, that's not going to fly. It's just going to be mucky goo. So you, you typically, you get a tarp and you throw it out and you, onto the tarp and then you let it dry a little bit. The worms will scurry down because they don't like the light. And, yep. and so as you can see, this quickly becomes time consuming, right? It, it, it quickly becomes not really commercially viable um, or, or just me means that you need to do additional things in order to process your castings out. So um, yeah, there, there, there are many ways to do it, but I, I think getting a, a flow through style is, is going to be the easiest, but Hey, there's, there's learning opportunities too. When you do get your hands dirty and you do the, the sifting tray and things, um, you know, I, I like to encourage teachers and, and, and school students and things try that, that method, because you get to see the cocoons, you get to see, you know, what's going on and the smells and, uh, and everything. It's, it's a, it's good to, it's good to know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Gotcha. Where are you on your thriving farmer journey? If you go to growingfarmers.com, you can click on our assessment, take our assessments, just a few questions, and what it will do is show you exactly where you are on the five-stage thriving farmer journey. And what this will do then is give you some next steps, some resources that help you know what to focus on next in your business to move you to the next level with your farm. All right. So then, you know, we talked about the couple of different ways you use it. Um, obviously folks that are doing, let's say everything from house plants can just toss them in there up to even large scale. Now, can you also use worm castings to kind of like um, inoculate your other compost as well? Yes. One, 100%. Any, any, um, anytime you're starting a compost file, you want to, you want to inoculate it with some aged compost and, mm -hmm. and think of vermicompost as the end stage of a thermophilic compost. So after, well, after it's, it's gone, it's gone mesophilic and now it's gone even, you know, room temp. Um, there's going to be, if, if it was done outside and the worms were in there, that that's what you want. And that's where you you're going to get the most advanced uh, set of microbial diversity. And, and that's really what you want. Uh, you know, everyone needs to understand how, how compost works. It's, it's got nothing to do with NPK. Absolutely you know, zero, there might be some in there and it might feel a little bit, but it's, you know, worm castings are typically like one, one, one or less, you mm -hmm. know, it's, it's all about the soil food web and they have no problem 
fixing nitrogen out of the air. There are free living nitrogen fixing bacteria. I mean, go take a look at any mountain, go take a look at a forest. Who is fertilizing those massive trees? I mean, we live in a, in a rainforest, as I mentioned, and, and yeah. I just, I thought there's got to be a better way. I mean, everyone's fixated on nitrogen, you know? Um, there's 78% nitrogen in the air or something like that, really close. So yeah. it makes sense to, uh, to get those microbes that are capable of pulling that out of the air and getting them into your compost pile. And I, 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 I would recommend looking up a guy by the name of Jean Pen, P-A-I-N. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I don't speak French very well. So that guy, uh, he's, he's dead now, but he, he's from France and he, um, he was, um, built these, these compost piles from, uh, shreddings. Uh, he, he built his own wood chipper and, and they were having fire issues in the forest. And so he, I think he got some money from the government and he was basically clearing brush and making sure that these forests um, were free of this debris, too much debris on the ground. And he was building these massive compost piles, building a heat exchanger out of them. And also uh, with an anaerobic vessel in the center was producing natural gas. And he was using that natural gas to um, run his vehicles and he was using the hot water to heat his home. And these piles that he would build, they would go for 18 months. And there was no nitrogen added, zero, just, just the initial leaves that might've been in there. So uh -huh. where did all that nitrogen come from, right? It came from the air and that's, it's um, by, is this, you know, that Kevin Costner movie, um, Field of Dreams, right? If yeah. you build it, they will come. Uh, if, if you withhold it, nature will, will bring it. It will find a way in, in, in most cases. So that's the fascinating thing about what we, we call it the patient man's compost. Yes. About, uh, Jean's uh, uh, type of compost. Um, and that's, uh, you know, it's a very um, high lignin uh, fungal dominant compost. And obviously 18 months is a very long time to wait for your compost. So, you know, you have to take that with a, a grain of salt and, and really, um, you got to prepare, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, or build uh, lots of compost piles. <laughs> bingo. And just you know? realize it's going to take a long time. Yeah. 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 I mean, think, think about, think about um, your market garden and, and how much you've got and think about how much you lose to pest pressure. Uh, and if you're someone who's spraying chemicals, think about how much you're spending on that and, and more think about your health and the health of the people who you are feeding. You know, you shouldn't be using those things. So maybe allocating some of your space to composting, if you if you added it all up long term, maybe that's the sustainable path. Even though yeah. you might not produce as much, you maybe you maybe you don't even make uh, as much, but you'll be producing a higher quality food. So then maybe you could actually charge more. Um, I don't know. But we found that it's it's working for us, and yeah. we're not we're not rich. <laughs> you know, I drive a a beat up Mazda three, and you know, I I, I don't. Um, I don't see uh, myself being like a really a wealthy man from a monetary standpoint, but I see myself being wealthy in, in health and in, and in knowing that um, these types of activities are key for mm -hmm. the future of our planet. Like there has to be a way of some kind of, you know, it's going to get a little bit philosophical, but you know, um, there's got to be a better way. M money is, is obviously something, this, this ability to transfer wealth is very important, but you know, there, there needs to be some way to, to do this better, you know? Yeah. And, I, and I think it starts with just being self-sufficient um, at least to what, 60 miles, you know, I think that's sort of a reasonable range to source your, your things from and to sell to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I, I think we have to look at, it's unfortunate that, you know, if you were to actually sell like five acres of incredibly uh, rich ground, developers don't look at that. And obviously you don't want to ever sell to the developer, but a, you know, people typically don't look at that as a sign of health. I mean, you don't list, you know, the listing on Zillow isn't like, you know, soil organic matter 4.2. Um, and he's got, you know, this many worms because we did a, a study, a grid study of the backyard. Um, but I, I think obviously if, 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 if there is, and again, this is obviously really going philosophical. If there is some sort of great reset in the next decade where, you know, things really change up and it all comes back to, you know, what you can grow and what you can make, because that's, what's really valued. I think that that metric is going to completely flip. A hundred percent, Michael, when, when we got flooded and for anyone who's listening, go, go look up, um, BC floods, you know, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. 
it, it was bad. The there, uh, I remember hearing the call. The dike is broken, and it had broken in two places. And Sheesh. you know, you can you can argue that maybe we shouldn't have dikes and this and that, and we shouldn't be living there. And it's it used to be a lake. It really did. It, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But the reality is, it's extremely fertile farmland, and that's what that's what was going on. And man, you should have seen the panic buying. It was already bad from COVID. I mean, we yeah we had a toilet paper shortage. I don't know if you guys did, but we did. Yes, <laughs> uh, yeah. kind of funny that that was ironically. Funny, but, <laughs> but that's what that's what people in this area value. Uh, myself, I, you know, I think just go buy a bidet and 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 call it a day. Uh, but anyway, man, the 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 run on food was incredible. And, you know, I, I was sitting there and I was very concerned, you know, I was, I was like watching my shipping container. It was about half, you know, half an inch from floating away. Like Noah's Ark. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm thinking, Oh my God, what have I like, Oh, this is my whole life just floating away. But I wasn't worried about food. Yes. You know, so, you know, disaster affects everybody, but I wasn't worried about food. And I, I just sort of sat there and what is the market, the, the property that I'm on, there's a market and they, they sell there's I'm, I'm co-located on the farm and we have a market there and people were just like, wow. I just, the look on their face and the urgency. I, I had not seen that. I've never seen that before. And yeah. it was, it was, uh, it was eye opening. And I just thought, you know what? I'm so glad I started market gardening. I'm so glad I know how to grow food. And I'm so glad I know how to grow really good food with a with a long storage life and this is important for anyone who's listening you your trace elements and your minerals and the way you grow your food will shape uh, and and affect the shelf life like drastically Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. and that's that's key because as this climate stuff continues it's coming i mean just a just a few weeks ago I, i had to like what colorado's on fire it's the middle yeah. of winter and i yeah. think like 170 200 homes i don't know it was it was just that's that's wild i don't think we've seen the least of it yet so now be, being prepared to um, look after yourself and look after your community that's just a it's a no-brainer and then you know we saw a lot of bartering going on here while like we were basically an island the highway was shut down we couldn't get in or out we couldn't get to the states we couldn't get to the harbor we couldn't we're, we're about 60 miles away from the port of vancouver mm-hmm. and the city of vancouver and you know we're we're actually right at the sumas border um, but nothing was happening because it was a giant flood and uh that that was just you know some something to think about is you know okay well what have you got? You got some diesel. Okay. I've got some of this and this and that, you know, and it was like, oh, that, that felt, that felt mm-hmm. easy. <laughs> mm-hmm. And yeah. so I, I think maybe in the future will be some kind of a hybrid of, of sharing, but certainly, um, you know, these are, these are talents. They haven't been forgotten. Um, we can thank probably the Amish and, and those types of, um, uh, uh religious groups, you know, in, in the various parts of the world who have said, you know, and, and maybe it was a bit extreme where they reject technology, but thanks to, to them, they, a lot of these knowledge is still here and, you know, we, we can, we can pick it up and we can um, apply it to our context and, and, and have success work. Nature is a, such a very generous thing as we know. And, and if you commit yourself to working with nature and, and you'll be successful and we can get out of this, we can, if, if we turn this, turn this around and it starts yeah. with, you know, uh, vote with your dollars, right? Where you spend your money, choose, choose to spend your money with someone who is close to you, even if it costs you more. In fact, all the more so if it costs you more, that money is staying in your community. And that's, that's something that uh, as a young person, I, I really didn't understand. I just thought, well, I'm poor. Uh, yeah. Low price is the most important. And it's, it's, it's not, you're hurting yourself. And that's, that's the, uh, that's the modern kind of capitalistic, society that we live in this consumption culture that it's been engineered that way. And we just, we just can't, can't keep doing it. We've, we've got to start, um, save your seed, you know, think about it. Regionally adapted seed. That's the Holy grail, man. I mean, we, we have, um, we've done this, uh, um, the, the farm that we, I mentioned earlier, local harvest, they, uh, they lost a lot of food um, to that flood. And then, and then they lost more food to the freeze. But yeah, very, very cool is that uh, there were a whole, their beds are, I think they're five foot wide and 300 foot long, um, something like that. There, they had this one section where the brat, these, um, their savoy cabbages 
And uh, this one section survived. So guess what? Those are going to go to seed. We're going to save those seeds. And now we've got regionally adapted seeds that for whatever reason, you know, uh -huh. uh, they could handle that cold. And so there's all these little advantages that come um, when you start doing things locally and you learn to uh, depend on your, yourself or at least your local community, you're, you're going to benefit. Yeah. Now, I want to go back to something you said a little bit earlier about, you know, the quality of your soil and the length of shelf life. So we can consistently get two weeks plus on our salad mix because we do have really, we have better soils. And again, I feel like our soils are still not all the way there. Um, we still have a long ways to go. Um, but I'm, so I'm really excited to see, you know, what we can get to when we're looking at, you know, super high organic matters and, you know, the right soil food web underneath the soil. So, um, but yeah, it's, um, it's, I, I feel so many folks, they start to scale and they say, well, I'll just do 20 acres of produce. But if you were to take the effort and put all the fertility and all the effort you would put into that 20 acres on just one or two acres, a lot of the time that you could actually grow more on those couple acres than you could the whole mac the old macro scale, just because um, fertility is a huge thing that so many farmers under, under realize. They do. And I just look at the world and I see... You know, I've been to Saskatchewan, which is a big farming region. A lot of our wheat's grown here in Canada. Very, very big. You know, my, my wife's um, members of her family farm there. And, um, you know, they, we drove for like 20 minutes. We passed a house and he's like, you know, that's, that could be yours. <laughs> and we, wow. we were yeah. still on it. We we're still on this man's property. I mean, think of the, the hectares and hectares and hectares and hectares. And yeah. it's just, just him and his wife bunch of really expensive machines and uh, a couple of kids you know that's that's just crazy to me you know when there's so many people who um you think of the mental health issues today my and i i've had my own struggle you know i i started partying uh, and i i didn't quit partying for about a decade and i came out of that with some mental health issues you know i just had a really hard time feeling fulfilled and satisfied and yeah and man when i started gardening the the natural way i noticed just better better in um gi health right because that's what yeah. that was initially my goal but also improved mental health and we know now there's there's a lot of information coming out that the two are just very very intimately yeah. related so that's something that um you know you think about modern society it's like yeah you have 20 acres but can you farm 20 acres sustainably um Yes, if you're maybe doing cattle and you're grazing them and you're moving them around and things like that. But as far as like growing food, I mean, why not take your, your property and, and split it up into one or two acre segments and, and, and get people in your community growing on there, you know, um, because people need work. People need good work that uh, is very rewarding work and uh, isn't like, is there any more noble cause than feeding Mm -hmm. you know, your, your local community. I mean, when it comes down to it, uh, you know, I, I know, I remember as a kid, I used to watch the show lifestyles of the rich and famous. And you remember that guy with it? I don't know if you've seen that this guy with this wicked English accent. And I just, okay. oh, just beautiful. And just, just ritzy, posh, really, really posh kind of lifestyle. And, and that's what now you fast forward to today, you know, the kind of, um, the, the Kardashian lifestyle that, you know, everybody wants to be a king or a prince or a queen or whatever. And it's like, hang on yeah. a minute. You know, what's wrong with just being a peasant? <laughs> yeah. You know, like, let me tell you, some of the best wine and some of the best food I've ever had has come from some of the dirtiest hands you've ever seen. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that to me, that's, that's the real wealth. Uh, who can feed you? Who can, um, you know, who can nourish you? That's, yeah. that's the new flex, right? Yes. Now you got a picture on your Instagram, um, of supplying worm castings and worms to an, or uh, actually a vineyard. Talk to us yes. a little bit about that. Were they yeah. actually pouring the worms right into the, where the base of the plants? So we vines? Did, yeah. So we did a, a test there. Now that that's a, a beautiful farm that was previously uh, a horse. It's a riding arena and they had horses there for a long, long time. So think very, very yep. rich in organic matter as those horses were out in the field and, and so that's why they chose to grow there. And they were having some, some issues as the climate has continued to change here. They don't, they don't irrigate. And so one of the advantages of worm castings is that they, uh, and just 
increasing organic matter naturally, having high, high uh, levels of humus, um, you retain water. And so uh -huh. we, we did a test in, their, um, in the sections of their vineyard where it was struggling. It was an old riverbed that kind of ran through there, uh, in a river, river like, like creek. Um, and it was very rocky. And so what was happening is the, the water was just not staying. And so what we did is we took our, our vermicompost, which we just on its own right, a properly made uh, vermicompost or, or worm casting will, will retain water. Um, and we add to that biochar and some other, some other things that um, really help try to just keep the nutrients and keep the water uh, in that area. And so that, that was what we did um, to try and see if those, uh, those vines would uh, improve. And that was a really uh, generous uh, thing for them to, to let us try. Uh, that, was, that, was, um, that was really right at the beginning when we started to produce, um, produce commercially. I had, yeah. I had seen myself i'm a balcony grower and i grow uh cherry tomatoes and uh, you know I, I just love them they're, they're amazing if you want a delicious tomato everybody knows to, a cherry is going to have the most flavor um generally speaking so i i had you know was used to what they were and man i put the worm castings in there and i just i, I just was blown away with the flavor and so that's something that you know when you think about wine yeah it's all about the flavor and that's exactly yeah yeah it really comes from the the, the trace elements the minerals the, the the presence of diverse biology and and so we saw um you know some some uh some pretty neat results there and i actually have a, if you go on our instagram um the the owner of that winery gave me uh the remaining pinot gris that they planted that year we, we applied it as a, uh, topically to some existing vines that were probably yep. six or eight years old. And we also applied it uh, at transplant, which is the ideal time. Okay. Um, and if you go on Instagram and you go through there, you'll see there's a picture of a, a Pinot Gris. It's grafted onto some uh, French uh, stock for disease protection. Um, so that the stocks, you, you might notice that. Uh, but if you look at the left one, it, look at the roots, A, the size of that root ball, right? So a, a big root ball, for those who don't know, means more contact with the soil. It means more biology. It mm -hmm. means more water. It, it's a pro. You want strong root growth underneath. And then you look at the one on the right and you'll see it's about 30% less. And that's, it's just from the worm castings. And so uh, not only did the one on the left uh, fruit in its first season, which is pretty unusual when you're transplanting grapes. Um, but, but it, it has this substantially thicker stem. Mm -hmm. It's got an, it's got a, a whole extra, um, stem of growth uh -huh. and, and really phenomenal. And, and the interesting thing is that in that experiment, we, we planted them in compacted clay, uh, a section of our market garden lab that had, uh, was previously farmed with heavy machinery and, um, they do cow corn. And so it was, it was quite compacted, but we did it the same for both of them. And only one got about a half cup, uh, a half cup to a cup of worm castings. And I mean, the results, they speak for themselves. You, you've got a 20 to 30% increase in root ball. And when mm -hmm. you, when you see um, healthy roots like that, I mean, it just, it, it just, um, it, it pays itself forward in the, re and the whole rest of the growth of that plant in um, its, its vitality, its ability to produce reduce pest pressure and in Rhonda, Rhonda Sherman goes into quite a bit of detail. I mean, I'm not going to really talk about it on this podcast because you should go read, but read her book. Mm -hmm. She, she has done a lot of great research into the, the advantages for different crops and things, but suffice to say, right. We look at nature. We want to imitate nature in nature, the compost worms, they're surface dwellers. Um, they love a good mulch layer. And they're in there to, to take decomposing plant matter and what comes out of their butt is what I would say, it's not poo, it's soil. They poop soil and there are growth hormones in there like auxin, A-U-X-I-N, you Google that. Um, a phenomenal, phenomenal impact to the plants. And so that's what the, the vineyard owner was looking for. It's what we're looking for. It's what everybody's looking for. You know, I, 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 wanna, I wanna see my my plants be as, as resilient as possible. And in, in a market garden context, it's really hard. You have to make a conscious decision between, well, I'm going to take this whole row and I'm going to dedicate it to not a, not a cash crop, but not necessarily a traditional cover crop either. It's a, it's a crop to feed the soil food web. It's maybe it's, 
multi-purpose. Maybe it's blocking wind. Maybe it's providing shade. Um, you know, maybe it's just attracting birds, right? So uh, the smaller you are, the harder it is. And, and introducing a really high quality compost or introducing um, a high quality vermicompost worm castings into your growing operation is going to help with your pest pressure. Um, it's not, it's not a, a panacea. You know, you still, you really need to look to uh, improve the diversity of what you're growing on your farm and to make sure that you've, you've provided the habitat for those predatory insects and, and predators like, you know, the higher order soil food web members like birds. Yeah. Um, don't forget those things poop too. So they're in there, they're eating, and they're also, they're helping you out and they're providing fertility to your garden. So although you're losing space and you might be producing less, you're going to be producing more in higher quality. So with less trouble. So maybe it evens out. I don't know. I, I, in our experience, it's worked out quite well. Mm -hmm. And the book you recommended right there again was the worm farmers handbook, handbook. Yeah, yep, by, by Rhonda uh, Sherman. And that's yeah. uh, Chelsea green is the uh, publisher on that. So um, you can check that out online. Well, this has been fabulous. Um, I've learned so much about worms and uh, I got some great takeaways. Talk to me a little bit about where can folks find out more about you and the work you do? Yeah, um, thank you. And I, I appreciate the opportunity to do that. Um, so that, that farmer that, that originally taught me that course, Dan, he, when COVID hit, he reached out to me and, and he said, look, man, I, I'm not going to do the gardening course this year because I can't. It, yeah. it was always in person and he said i'd like to do virtual and so we got together and we started to produce an online gardening course and so if you go to localharvestgardening.com uh, that's the website for it there's an instagram as well or, um, and you can you can find the the course uh outline it's broken mm -hmm. into three modules and this course we have myself as, as a composting person. Um, we have Dan, who's the, the gardener, the market gardener with uh, his experience. And then we have a, an edible landscape designer. And the three of us have put our talents together to try and provide a comprehensive course that um, you know, implements things from Korean natural farming, from permaculture, from just everywhere that there's someone doing something where they work with nature. That's what we're doing. And we've tried to provide it uh, um, I'm very, very fortunate because Dan and Jack both used to be school teachers. Okay. And so they've done a, a really great job in taking this information and making it understandable. And it's applicable no matter where you live on the planet, no matter what zone you're in. The focus of what we demonstrate is zone seven, uh, coastal BC, but it, it the, these, this knowledge is transferable anywhere. If you commit yourself to working with nature, uh, you'll win. And, and in the composting section, about a third of the course is dedicated to composting, soil building. We show you how to make uh, and build really great thermophilic compost, pagashi compost, vermicompost, and also composting in place, mulching, um, all of these techniques to build soil fertility. We do extracts and things. So if you're looking um, to be guided you know, as you learn, uh, I think there's something there for you. And, and certainly, um, you know, we, we would uh, be honored to have anyone come join our little journey and get this information out uh, to the world at large. Well, yeah, thank you very much, Andrew. And I'm sure people can also reach out to you through email if they have more questions about um, uh, composting and that sort of thing, or is the best way to go directly through your website? Um, yeah, if, if you want to connect, I, I'm a social guy. I, I love people. I, I'm very busy these days, but I really make an effort to get, to get in touch with everyone. Um, my Instagram is probably where I am the most. And that's, okay. um, T E R R A F L O R A O R G A N I C S.com or, or so that's the website. And also the Instagram, just yeah. Tara Flora Organics. And if you go on there, I'm, I'm pretty responsive. An email, terrafloororganics at gmail.com. Um, I'll definitely, I, I do consulting. So if someone really is like, they're looking for some commercial help, can help you with that. Uh, and, um, you know, if you got a question, I, I'll do my best. I, I have a lot of information that I like to share with people. There's, there's a lot of great information on the web. And uh, I'm sure if, if I don't know, I'll, I'll try my best to help you out. Uh, because this, 
this obviously I'm in business, but this is a community driven movement. It's a global movement. We all need to work with each other to help each other. Uh, all, all that I know I got for free. I had to work to get it, to learn it, to apply it. And, you know, I learned some things and I'm hoping to add value back uh, to sort of, you know, add my little bit to uh, pay it forward. Mm, absolutely. Well, thank you again so much for coming on today, Andrew, and uh, wish you the best in all your composting uh, endeavors. Yeah, thank you, Michael. I really appreciate the invite and uh, thank you to your team. Uh, you guys are just so courteous and, and organized and professional. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Hopefully we can talk again in the future. Absolutely. Hey, Thriving Farmers, have you checked us out on YouTube lately? We have a bunch of new content there, including a few rants by me. I uh, want to tell you, you don't want to miss them. Um, I actually go rant about you know some of the problems I see in our space and some of the challenges I see farmers uh, facing. So go check that out. We've got instructional videos over there as well. Talk about setting up our new farm here in Ohio and all the steps we're going to do that, as well as just tutorials and tips on best practices for all sorts of things on the farm. So go ahead, check over at Growing Farmers on YouTube and see the new content we put together for you. So there you have it, another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.